coming up on this episode of the Work Not Work Show. That first week changed my life in that I, I knew that I was going to want to do this and not physics, not math. For me, one of the joys of programming is kind of the same as the joy of mathematics. And that is there are an awful lot of truths to be discovered. And in the same way as with mathematics, once you discover those and string them together, you can create new truths. And so programming was a very kind of like liberating process for me because I could use the same thinking that I used with with math and use that to create real results. That's Dave Thomas, co-founder of The Pragmatic Bookshelf, co-author of the landmark books The Pragmatic Programmer, Programming Ruby, and Agile Web Development with Rails, as well as many other titles. Dave is also a highly sought-after keynote speaker, an enthusiastic and popular educator, and a true icon of the software development world. Dave Thomas humbly refers to himself simply as a coder who fell in love with software in his teens while still attending high school. It's a love affair that continues to this day as Dave, newly retired from the Pragmatic Bookshelf, approaches his 60s. In this part one of our interview, Dave reflects on his early influences, his formal education at Imperial College in London, making the leap into the commercial software development world, and laying the foundation for both his writing and publishing careers. We also talk about that little bit of Dave that is heading for outer space, Finally, in this part, Dave takes time to reflect on formal education and provide some surprising thoughts on whether or not there is still value in post-secondary studies. He even proposes a new alternative curriculum, which is more closely aligned with the times in which we now find ourselves. Dave Thomas was born in 1956 in Cheshire, England. As a child, he moved with his parents to live in both Canada and the United States. He returned to England for his secondary and post-secondary education and to begin his career in commercial software development. In the early 90s, he moved to the United States to continue his professional activities and where he eventually met and married his wife. He now permanently resides with his family in Dallas, Texas, and just recently became a U.S. citizen. We spoke with Dave at his home in Dallas. Dave, welcome to the Work Not Work Show. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. Dave, can you tell us about that early period in your life before attending college, and in particular, whether it had any bearing on your future career path? Uh, yes and no, um, in terms of the bearing on my future career. Um, my father was in um, electronics, and his uh, company moved him around a bit. So um, when I was about five years old, uh, I moved from a place called Wallasey, which is just across the Mersey from uh, Liverpool, and moved from there to uh, Ontario, which as a kid was a remarkable thing to do because we moved in the middle of December. And uh, when we got there, it was snowy 
And I mean, yeah, we have, every now and then we see snow in England, but this was like real snow. Uh, when we got to our house, there was actually six feet of snow between us and the front door, and the neighbors all came out to help us dig in. So that was an eye-opener. I really enjoyed my time both in Canada and in the States. Uh, when I was about, I guess, seven or eight, we moved down to New Jersey. And uh, I really enjoyed that because I think as a, as a child of that age, if you're lucky, and I was lucky, this continent probably offers the best schooling I could have had. Because at that age, I really wasn't into or, you know, I shouldn't have been into all of the kind of like learning facts stuff. Uh, and the schooling I've got was very, very exploratory and laid back. And I enjoyed a lot. Of course, being over here, I picked up an American accent, which was totally dismaying, dismaying to my mother. <laughs> um, so uh, every time we would go out in New Jersey, we had some friends who were English as well, and they had two slightly older children. And on the way home from that, she'd be turning around from the front seat and scolding my brother and me. Talk like that. Talk like that. Um, but, yeah, so I had an American accent. Um, and then I went back to England, of course, uh, when I was about 11. And uh, so I spent my first time in, in the States or in Canada being teased for having an English accent. Then I get back to England and I'm teased for having an American accent. So I had the best of both worlds. But in terms of schooling, I think I had the best of both worlds, too, because um, the secondary schooling in England, it was far more uh, uh, formal than it was here. And it suited me a lot better. Um, so I really uh, enjoyed my time over there. You can concentrate on specific areas a lot earlier uh, in England than you can in the States. So by the time I was 15 or so, I had pretty much decided I was going to be math and physics uh, and focusing on those areas, uh, which was, from my point of view, great, because I was absolutely lousy at languages and things like that. And also, if I hadn't done schooling in England, I would not have fallen into computing, because that was just a total accident based on the geographic location of my school. That's a good segue into my next question, is that in your last year of high school, you started taking university-level courses at a nearby technical college. Now, you described this in a 2009 interview with Satish Talim as falling in love with it in the first week. Can you tell us about what about coding captured your attention in quite that way? I, you know, that's a really good question, and uh, I've been thinking about that a lot. In that first week... It's, I mean, in that, that first week changed my life in that I, I knew that I was going to want to do this and not physics, not math, uh, much to the disgust of my parents. And it's very hard to say exactly what hooked me, particularly as at the time, the technology we were using, and I was using BASIC, and we were sending our programs off to our local council's mainframe system where they ran and then the results came back. And we were using a, an ASR33 teletype with a paper tape reader and a 110 board modem, uh, which you can probably just about type faster than it sends data. Right. The first one I remember using was 300 baud, so oh, yeah, that was the next generation. Yeah, we upgraded in the second year to get a 300-board modem. So uh, that was you know, unbelievable. Was it the kind with the phone cradle where you actually uh -huh, put the audio uh -huh. set in? Yeah, that's quite the yeah. classic, yeah. Yeah, the little hand, the little um, rubber cups on it and things. Right. 
I think it had, for me, the perfect combination of theoretical beauty but also practical application. Uh, I don't think I'd have put it that way at the time. Mm -hmm. But for me, one of the joys of programming is kind of the same as the joy of mathematics, and that is there are an awful lot of truths to be discovered or identities to be discovered. And in the same way as with mathematics, once you discover those and string them together, you can create new truths. And so programming was a very kind of like liberating process for me because I could use the same thinking that I used with, with math and use that to create real results and real output. So it really was the best of, best of both worlds. You were obviously programming with extremely limited resources. I mean, in terms of in terms of access to the mainframe and the, the speed at which you were communicating with it. Do you think that the limited resources make you a better programmer in the long term, or maybe even the opposite question? Do you think the unlimited resources today make programmers better or worse? No, I don't think it makes. I think at the time, I was a more careful programmer because the cost of making a mistake. Uh, was long. You know, we each got a little time slot where we could send our code up and then the next person got a turn. And so, you know, if you spent 20 minutes doing something and then five minutes uploading it and then instantaneously get back a syntax error on line 300, it kind of like trains you not to do that. And the same thing later on when we're using punch cards, you know, you'd be quite careful to make sure that your syntax was right before you submitted it. And you'd probably get a little bit better at running the code in your head to make sure logically it was right. At the same time, I would never say that's a great discipline because in, in the same way that nowadays spell checkers and Google have basically reduced the English and memory sections of our brain to mush. And, you know, who cares? I mean, as long as you've always got a spell checker available, then who cares? And I think that's kind of the same now uh, with, with software. Yeah, you can play around a lot more and experiment a lot more. Uh, I don't think the limited resources necessarily make you a worse programmer. But I do think there are aspects to earlier programming that are – there are things you pick up or would have picked up had you learned to program in the 70s that you don't pick up today uh, immediately anyway. What would be an example? Um, an example might be uh, things like, well, first of all, you pick up an innate sense of efficiencies because when machines, I mean, the average mainframe back then was way, way slower than the, the um, processes in your watch at the moment. And so your programs, when they executed, did not execute like in the blink of an eye. And you could track down what was happening because you, know, you could see it happening in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, so it was like a kind of like executing in slow motion. And that actually gave you a really good appreciation for things like, you know, big O notation. I mean, you didn't actually necessarily know it as such at the time, but you could tell when something was going quadratic or when something was going polynomial. And you really got a good sense of that at a kind of visceral level as opposed to a theoretical level. You got a good sense of memory and memory management, particularly as we were running programs in like 16K of memory. You, you got to think about how that worked and how you interacted with it. Uh, so I think there's a lot there that you just pick up because 
you know, it's primitive. I wouldn't say it was better. It was just primitive. And as a result, you learn things. Well, I, uh, I had a glancing blow with editing Hex directly way, way early on in my career. And I'm very thankful I did it. It gave me a strong appreciation for what's involved. I'm glad I, I never had to do it again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When you were at uh, when you were just finishing off high school and and about to go to Imperial College, you, there was a project where you uh, where you had to program around or you wanted to program a, around the the five program at a time limit that was imposed on you due to resource constraints. Can you just tell us briefly about that project? Oh, this was my my famous first meta programming program. Yeah, so the county council said that we could only store five programs up on their their mainframe and. Clearly, that wasn't enough uh, for any real programmer. So I wrote a basic program that would read other basic programs into itself and add them as lines uh, in its own program that would never get executed. And it would keep a little directory of where those programs were. And then on command, it would extract those back out to the file system. So I only ever had one and a half programs in their computer at any one time. I had my one big sort of like uh, file system program that had all the rest. And then I would just export out the ones I wanted to play with, play with them, and then effectively import them back in again. So, yeah, I guess my first claim to metaprogramming fame was self-modifying BASIC, which is something that normally you would get shot for does seem to sort of have a bearing on on kind of where your career wound up. I mean, just those ingenious workarounds and the elimination of redundancy, I mean, those came back to you later on in your career. We'll get to that in a bit more detail, but it, it sounds like your, your thinking, you know, as it stands today was being formed even, as, even back then. Once a hack, always a hack. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. So, <laughs> so, so eventually you graduated. Eventually sounds like you struggled with it. You did, obviously didn't, but you graduated from the Imperial College in London. Um, what was it that you learned there that was important to your future career path? Oh, I learned so much. I was phenomenally lucky there too. So the idea of a computer science degree was fairly new, uh, and I was the second year that they'd been running that class when I went in. And they were still finding their way a little bit. At the same time, they had some very strong ideas on how people should be taught. For them, computer science actually meant a science as opposed to a, a kind of uh, career college. And so they taught us a lot of abstract stuff that actually turns out to be fairly useful um, from statistics to low-level details of how the hardware worked, to algorithms and analyzing algorithms. We learned, I lost count, it would probably be about 15 different languages because we wanted to see different aspects of different ones. So as a course, it was really broad and stunningly useful. We also had some fairly big names because of our, our lecturers there were all of them doing some cool research. So um, it, the example always comes to mind is Bob Kowalski, who is very, very big in logic programming, prologue, this kind of thing, mm -hmm. was the person who taught us logic programming. Wow. <laughs> Unforgivingly taught us logic program, I might add. But that was that was fantastic experience. Tough the love, others, tough love well, I guess. It was definitely, definitely. But I know a whole bunch about Greeks. 
Let's see what else. Oh, yeah. And so the other side of the coin that was fantastic was that I was really lucky to get involved on the operations side. So I kind of like got a part-time job. I don't even know who's paid as a computer operator because the department had a an IBM mainframe that the students use for their programming exercises. You were keeping track of those blue cards. I was. I was keeping I was I was I was a master. I could swap disk packs, put tapes in drives, load card decks, um, change the ribbon on our line printer. I mean, I was like a master of, of the operations side. Ribbons. How but, about that? Uh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a nice it was a 1401 line printer. Wow. Which if you had the cover off would actually get blood coming out of your ears. It was so loud. Right. Sure. But I, I was also at that time, um, because I was like doing the that side, uh, the member of staff who actually ran that computer kind of took me under his wing. And so I got involved in doing some systems programming. And it's kind of interesting. A lot of people think open source started, you know, three years ago. IBM actually open sourced not only the source code of their operating system, which the one we used was uh, VMCMS, uh, but they also open sourced the microcode for their machine. And we actually, I don't know if it's still in there, it probably isn't, but I actually have a patch to the IBM 37135 microcode that wow. fixes a, there's, you can actually put the machine into a hard microcode loop where it stops executing instructions. Wow. If you execute, what was it, an IMPL instruction on itself. Anyway, so I got a whole bunch of experience doing some really pretty obscure programming, and I loved every minute of it. So what period of time would this have been? This would have been the late 70s, just by the way you've described it. Yeah, I think, when did I graduate? I graduated in 77, I think. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you speak of it in a very complimentary way. I mean, I had around the same time I was in university, and, and this was at the University of British Columbia, and and quite honestly got distracted by other things and didn't finish. But we'll, we'll get to that sort of detail in a moment. But, well, in fact, let's just talk about that for a moment, is that software development used to be a business of what you knew being more important than where you went to school and what you learned there. I mean, you, to a large degree, a lot of your programming was learned yourself when you were still back at the technical college do you still think that that's true today do you re- or do you recommend those coming up to now patiently get their high school certainly and and maybe a, a post secondary degree or two before they turn pro is there still value in post secondary education clearly it depends on what you go where you go mm-hmm. but i would have to say that my my glib answer would be no really I don't see the stuff being taught by the average university, and let me just stress that's average university, as being that applicable. They seem to shy away from the more theoretical side, so they're not giving people a deep grounding in the the theory behind what we do, and they seem to shy away from the more modern development practices. Um, so people are not coming out necessarily equipped to walk into a job. Instead, they are teaching kind of strange mix of languages. A lot of them are using Java. Uh, a lot of them are using C++. And not really exposing students to the kind of rock and roll that actually takes place You know, once you, you know, start working nine to five. So in that way, I'm not too sure that 
people are being served the way they should be. Having said that, I'm not convinced either that a university degree of any kind is the best preparation for participating in this industry. Because even with an absolute perfectly designed course, if it's fundamentally lectures plus exercises, I think you're going to miss out on a lot of the stuff that is really, really useful to make you succeed. So if I was to like design my ideal training for someone in our industry, I think it would be something like a year of desk learning where you pick up a whole bunch of stuff that you really need to know to get started. And that would be programming and a bit about operating systems, a bit about project management, blah, blah, blah. Then I would go and send people out for at least a year working in a controlled but real environment. So, you know, so you'd have businesses that would work with you to take on your people and basically you know, put them through the mill. At that point, people come back to the program for another year. Uh, at this point, they suddenly start to understand the issues that you're talking about when you're talking about things like you know, agility or you know, version control or a particular language or a particular order of algorithm or whatever it might be, because now they have the background to actually understand why this is a big deal. What you've described is, is really, it's, it's the notion of apprenticeship. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I think in, in, a, in the ideal world, that would be exactly how we teach. Uh, the problem is that to be an apprentice requires you having a, a halfway decent master. And though people who are prepared to do that are few and far between in our industry. I have a nephew that's, uh, he's an auto mechanic, but I mean, he went through the, the apprenticeship program and it was every bit as hard to get as an undergraduate degree at university. He worked every bit as hard, but in a very different way. But you've pointed to a, an interesting problem, and that is that really good people that you would want to learn from in many cases aren't good teachers. I think that's true. And they're not motivated by teaching because you know, this is an industry where the really good people are passionate about you know, whatever they're good at, um, and really asking them to slow down and take time to mentor someone, uh, would kind of, they would feel it would get in their way. I think one of the uh, things that we have to try to teach people is that in reality, that process of mentoring will actually teach you a lot about yourself and about your craft. Uh, because quite often after you become, you know, a expert in something, then you tend to stop thinking about what you're doing in the same way that if you're, if you're good at driving or if you do a lot of driving, I guess, you, you don't necessarily think about the actual actions that you're performing. You're kind of on autopilot. Your brain just does it for you. And you stop thinking about why you do this and why you do that. And quite often, having a novice sitting across from you saying, okay, you said that, but I don't understand why do I do that? You know, and being forced to stop and think about why you do it is incredibly valuable because quite often the assumptions that were valid three years ago no longer apply. And revisiting them every now and then because a novice asks you a question is, I think, a really powerful way of growing. So to demonstrate understanding, you should try and teach the subject, not just, not just practice it, but actually teach it as well. I think there's a lot to that. I really do. One of the benefits of pair programming particularly if the pairs are mixed 
experience is that both sides learn. And I, 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 there used to be a thing at conferences where they'd set up a room with people who just go in there and pair, pair program. And I used to love doing that because I would be doing it. Typically, I'd be showing people Ruby. And always I would come out knowing more Ruby than I went in. Interesting. Just because of the questions that were asked. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That they just had a perspective that you you couldn't possibly have just because you just couldn't be inside their brain, basically. And I would like I mean you you pick up idioms along the way, um, or you could call them bad habits, even mm-hmm. you know things that you do over and over again without thinking about them, and having someone stop you and say, "Why did you do that?" And you know the answer would be, "That's how I always do it." And whenever you hear yourself saying that, you know you've got a problem. Right. Because in essence, you're doing it because you've always done it a particular way without exploring any of the options. Exactly. So before we leave the early part of your career, again, based on a little bit of the research that I had done, you've worked on a project including the Giotto space vehicle that eventually went to Halley's Comet. Can you just tell us about that period after you graduated from school, that first startup that you were involved in, the period leading up to your uh, the time in New York where you met your wife? So let's think. I was... Uh, after I graduated, I actually stayed on to start a PhD, and I was kind of miserable uh, because the kind of topics that people were doing PhDs in, to me, didn't seem to have very much relevance to the actual things that I enjoyed doing, which was largely you know, writing code and solving problems. And you know, people were doing very abstract and very uh, artificial things. So after about a year, I had this long heart-to-heart with my advisor and basically said, I- I'm going to have to stop this. And he said, okay, I got a friend who's starting up his own consulting business. Why don't you go talk to him? So I went and uh, talked with him and loved what he was saying. And so I left college and went and became, uh, well, <clears throat> nowadays you would call it a startup. Back then, it was a sweatshop. Right. So basically, I was working really long hours for no money. But because they were just starting up, they were taking on every single project they could find. (laughs) And as a result of that, I got experience in unbelievable range of of software, from pure commercial systems to, you know, I actually wrote two bare metal operating systems to uh, I wrote uh, the runtime for a COBOL compiler. Uh, all sorts of random stuff. I got fairly deep experience in the travel industry, and just and I got to travel. I got to travel around the world. Right. So, so for me, that was an absolutely glorious time. So, and and you were footloose and fancy free at the at the time. So that made it a lot easier, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, although, let's try and think of the the timing of this. I was pretty serious. I had a girlfriend at the time, and. We lived in London, and then I moved across to Holland. Oh, we both moved across to Holland wow. and lived over there for a while. And in fact, she's actually still living there. So, but that was, yeah, I don't know how long it lasted, four, five, six years, something like that. And I kind of felt that the company was growing, and I wasn't, it wasn't the company I joined, which is like, yeah, of course, obviously it wasn't. But for me at the time, that was kind of like a, a, a revelation. So I looked around for other stuff, and I came across um, what was at the time uh, the UK's, I think it was the only computer manufacturer in the UK, 
and no one will ever heard of them. Um, but it was a company called CTL that became ITL, and they had their own custom processor um, and custom machine. And I went and worked in what would be called their skunk works. It was kind of like their special projects area. Uh, and you knew it was special projects because our building was a uh, temporary hut in the car park. <laughs> and so we worked on basically, again, the salesman in this place would go out and say yes to anything the customer asked. And then after the, after the sale was made, they'd come to us and say, well, we actually promised them this. You know, and we'd go, oh, um, and then but it go, doesn't. But it doesn't do that. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> right. So we we learned how to make that machine do wild things. Um, it was really a very good experience. And again, working at all sorts of levels, the the department had both hardware and software people. And typically, the the solution to one of these problems would involve both. So at times, I was like hacking the microcode of a cable modem, and times I was, you know, coding high-level stuff to create, like, new languages and stuff for people. Uh, so it was a really wide range. But I think the most fun project was the, uh, the Giotto one. Um, and it came about because the European Space Agency, being European, had to pass a workout uh, to the member countries uh, according to some formula. And so uh, on the Giotto project, the UK had to have, you know, a certain amount of whatever. And so being the only UK computer manufacturer, we got brought in to do the test equipment for Giotto. So what would happen is you would have the satellite sitting in a room and you would take the radios out of it and then you would plug instead this parallel bus into it, it. that would simulate the data stream that came off the radios. And you would basically you know, send stuff to it to see how it reacted and then it would send stuff back to you. Fantastic. Uh, which really, really was cool, except it required a, I can't remember the number, I think it was 56-bit wide, high-speed synchronous bus. Totally and absolutely bespoke. And of, no one had an interface like that that we could just plug into our machine. So we, in the car park, got our, our project to actually create the hardware for this. And so I worked with a guy called Irving Kaplan, absolutely brilliant hardware guy, very, very much like myself in that, you know, if you can do it a different way, then let's do it that way. And so he came up with this glorious design for this board, which actually had a whole bunch of um, PLAs on it, and it was controlled by a 6809 microprocessor. And my job was to program the microprocessor to handle the DMA transfers back and forth between the computer and the rest of the world. And so um, I had a blast doing that. And the coolest thing is we got to go to the European Space Agency and actually, you know, test this thing with the real satellite. So we're all wearing our little bunny suits and, and doing things like that. What an experience at such an early stage in your career. Oh, gorgeous. Absolutely glorious. And, I mean, it's kind of like the summary of, of what I want to do. I mean, there was obviously a whole bunch of theory in there, a lot of low-level you know, uh, groveling around at the hardware level. But at the same time, you had this this phenomenally visible outcome. You right, know? right. And it was just very, very rewarding to do that. And I'm guessing that the Giotto is probably still out there. I have no idea, to be <laughs> honest with you. It, it never, it never phones home. Well, yeah, but it, so. but it's traveling to some distant galaxy at this at this moment in time. And there's a little piece of you in that. 
Uh, yeah, although actually probably the reality is, unfortunately, unless there's a bit of skin or something, there isn't because, right. yeah, none of our code actually ran on the satellite. It all ran on the outside. Right. But uh, Now, yeah. so at the end of that period, you, you, were, you were traveling the world. You were working on this project. You, you were in New York, and you met your wife there, and, and, and you, you, you got married and then settled in the U.K. to start your family. Um, and then around 1994, you decided to permanently relocate to Dallas, Texas, where you've been ever since. So what were the underlying reasons for the move? Was it primarily for family or business reasons that you moved to the U.S. in 1994? It was family. My wife's parents um, were living, had been living in Dallas for a while. They were getting on a little bit. At the same time, we just had our first child Mm -hmm. and felt it would be kind of nice to be close to her relatives. So we we weren't intending to live in Dallas. We um, we came across here and stayed with them while we were looking for something else. And in fact, at the time, we were thinking of getting something in New York. And I actually interviewed a couple of times in New York, and she came along with me. And we just thought to ourselves that, okay, we were uh, new parents, and as all new parents, we were making it up as we went along. (laughs) And we were just thinking how much harder it would be to do that in New York City. You know, even mechanical things like pushing a stroller over you know, 12-inch curbs is not a trivial job. Right. So uh, we kind of canned the New York idea. And then just out of the blue, a guy that I'd worked with previously while I was in the UK, um, an American, phoned me up and said, hey, I, I need someone to come do some work. Where was it now? It was in uh, New Hampshire, I think. So I, um, I, I flew up there and basically started doing consultancy. And that was it. So, so for 25 years, you've lived and worked in the U.S., and uh, I understand that you finally became a U.S. citizen in 2014. Just uh, as a bit of a side note, can you tell us a little as, as to why that was important for you to do, for you to become a citizen at this point, after so many years in the United States? The simple answer is because it's my home, and I, kel- I felt kind of uh, rude, I guess, not getting citizenship. The longer answer is that when I first came over here, there was a lot of confusion about whether or not you could keep your foreign passport if you became a U.S. citizen. And because both of my children have dual nationality and because it was really important that they wanted to be able to go to or we wanted them to be able to go to Europe whenever they needed to, I, it was important for me that I kept my U.K. passport. So for the, for a while... My wife had her American citizenship, I had my UK citizenship, and that gave us the ability to be in both places. Then the, uh, I got talking to people, and they were saying, well, the rules say one thing, but in practice, it doesn't quite work that way, and you can keep your UK passport. And I kept looking into that. And then finally, I actually, for some reason, actually called the immigration people and asked them. And uh, they said, no, it's a, you can keep it, just don't tell us. <laughs> Oh, so so at that point, I I went through the the process. Well, it's it's always touching. I think is that when you hear somebody who makes a a decision, uh, you know, a conscious decision to to become a citizen as opposed to being a citizen as a as an accident of birth. I mean, it's 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 more meaningful in many ways. Yeah, I I don't want to get too sentimental about it, but really, it, this is this is the place where I feel most comfortable. This is my home, and. It's, it's kind of interesting because a lot of people in Europe 
have looked down their noses a bit at the states, um, and they view it as being kind of like crass or or whatever else. And that's a view that's basically born from watching American television and American news and movies and yeah. movies. Yeah. yeah. But when you get here and when you actually live here and you realize that the people here are, by and large, some of the friendliest and also some of the most energetic that you're going to come across, you forgive a whole bunch of that, that you know, incidental stuff. And I, I just, like I say, I feel more at home here than I have felt um, in England for a long time. I go back to England now and it's been so long that so much has changed that I really no longer f- know my way around. Even small things like I, I still haven't quite worked out how to buy a train ticket uh, because they have this incredibly <laughs> arcane system with you know, five companies on the same rail track and you can't swap between them. And all. I, I give up. And they did the, cra- the crazy thing about selling the railway, the actual physical plant, oh, the railway yeah. to somebody else. Yeah. So I mean, it's crazy system. It really is. And it, I, I mean, I'm not convinced it's better. Um, it's just more confusing. So. Your professional life has brought you into contact with many of the leading lights in modern software development. I mean, virtually a who's who. Who of those do you feel you've ha- have had the greatest influence on you and why? If you had to pick one person that you've you know, come in contact with over the course of your career in, in a technical role, who is it that has influenced you the most and why? That is a remarkably unfair question. <laughs> you can choose not to answer it if you prefer. Okay, but I, I think I'll give an answer. Okay, it's it sort of like people always ask me questions. Not, people do not always ask me questions, but people ask you questions like, you know, what's your favorite music? What's your favorite movie? And I can never answer that question because it depends on what I want to listen to at the time. You know, or do I want to go see some hard science fiction movie or a weepy or whatever else, you know, right. and having a favorite of something which is that diverse is really, really hard. Right. And the same thing applies with people. I mean, going to pick the most important influence, uh, you know, there have been so many. But if I'm going to pick one that had the most impact, then that's kind of easier because in the same way that you can deflect something when it's moving slowly at the very beginning and it have a massive impact later on at the end. Um, the person that I worked with the most early on in my career uh, was actually at Imperial College. So when I was doing my systems programming job, I was working alongside a postgraduate who was doing research into aspects of uh, the operating system. And so we would quite often sit side by side uh, on our little Linwood VDUs and be coding away. And he would teach me unbelievable amounts. If, if you're talking about apprenticeship and mentoring, he was my mentor. And so he showed me so much about the aesthetics of programming. He was very, very religious about certain things like layout and the naming of variables and the the designs and how abstraction helped and this kind of thing. And he was very gentle about it, but he would be very good at making me feel like an absolute fool and helping me fix my stuff. So he had a, 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 an amazing influence on my entire career. So I would have to say him. Now, I mean, that's unfair to all of the other, you know, dozens of people. Right. That, 
I've been impressed by along the way. Right. But I think in terms of like the biggest impact on where I am now um, must, go to, must go to Greg Pugh. Added to which, I mean, he, he was the one who gave us the rubber duck. So you know, he's important to the entire industry because of that. Have you stayed in touch with him? Is he still around? I lost touch with him when I came. Uh, when did I lose touch with him? Actually, fairly soon after I went to Holland, I think I lost touch with him. Mm. And every now and then I try to find him again, and I've never quite been successful. Mm. So if he's out there, I would love to say hello. And his name was again, sorry? Greg Pugh. Greg P-U-G-H. Pugh. Yep. Interesting. Well, it's sort of like my own experience is that in terms of the skills that I use every day, it's the written word, it's the spoken word, and I have to give Mrs. Beckett in English 11 a lot of credit for having taught me all of those skills. So that's not that's not to say that I didn't have other great mentors and teachers in my life, but it very much as you say about Greg Pugh, she provided me with some practical skills which I've used virtually every day for the rest of my life. So a, a, a commendation for teachers in secondary school everywhere in terms of the kind of impact that they can have. That's the end of this first part of our three-part interview with Dave. In part two, we start with Dave's chance meeting with Andy Hunt and their early projects together, including writing The Pragmatic Programmer and Programming Ruby. He talks at length about starting and growing The Pragmatic Bookshelf, as well as what the future holds for publishing and for books in general. In part three, we talk to Dave about his life after The Pragmatic Bookshelf. You will find both parts to be fascinating, funny, and thought-provoking. Be sure not to miss either by subscribing to the Work Not Work Show podcast on iTunes or by following Work Not Work on Twitter. The Work Not Work Show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. All rights are reserved. Our theme music is Working for Friday from the Lionfish Music Group, located in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. Finally, thank you, our audience, for supporting Work Not Work, the show about people who have turned their passion into their profession.